something a little bit different today, doing a reaction video. Um, I've been looking forward to watching this video for, I think I saw it about 24 hours ago. Um, it's a video by the Jimmy Dore Show. If you're not familiar with Jimmy Dore, you really need to check him out. Um, he says stuff, I honestly don't know how he gets away with what he says. He's absolutely hilarious. He's unbelievably blunt. He's unbelievably honest. Um, and I just thought it would be great fun because I love Jimmy Dore and I love um, Professor Mateus, who he has got on today, uh, a professor from Ghent University uh, in Belgium, which is it's a great city. I love that city. Uh, but also he has some very interesting things to say about what happened to us all. Well, maybe not all of us, but many of us during the COVID pandemic. Um, as you may have also noticed, it's absolutely freezing here on the Gold Coast. I don't know what is going on with our weather, but we are a subtropical climate and I've literally got four layers on tonight. So please excuse me shivering as we work our way through this. I just saw my own, I just saw my hair. This looks terrible. Uh, okay, let's Matthias, go. Matthias Desmond is a lecturer of, psych of psychoanalytic psychotherapy. I can barely read these words that he's, <laughs> that he's a specialist in. In the Department of Psychoanalysis and Clinical Consulting at Ghent University in Belgium, he's the author of over 100 peer-reviewed academic papers, including this book, The Psychology of... I've wanted to get this book for ages, but I'm determined to not buy paperback anymore because... I'm getting old and the writing's just far too fucking small. If you go for the hard copy, it's larger print. But from memory, last time I checked, the hard copy of this was a little bit expensive. But I have seen excerpts from it and it is... totalitarianism, and he's widely recognized as the world's leading expert on the theory of mass formation as it applies to the COVID-19 pandemic. Please welcome to the show, Matthias Desmond. Thanks for coming on. It's hard to be here. It's uh, I just want to say that I've been looking for an explanation of what happened during COVID because all my friends uh, who used to be cynical skeptics of the government, of big pharma, of propaganda, of corporate media, all of a sudden turned their brains off. And worse than that, they started to repeat the propaganda. Worse than that. They started to shame people who were skeptical of the propaganda around COVID, around the numbers around COVID, around everything they were saying around COVID. Not only that, that they shame those people, but then they talk with a virulence and an enthusiasm. That I, so these are people who are former skeptics, people who still don't think we landed. I can't agree <clears throat> anymore with this. I was actually working at multiple or across multiple university campuses. And of all the people in society that you would think would be the most skeptical are the people who are supposed to be people that question literally everything. They seem to, first of all, forget that medicine and science was an applied science, not religious dogma. And they just completely forgot that they were there to question everything. For me, I think um, it was the fear that was uh, like uh, that was strummed up by all the politicians and all the bureaucrats, all the epidemiologists. It was just, if you remember television at the time, it was literally 24 seven. 
24-7 on the news, this is all that they were talking about. And that fear, fear for themselves, fear for their older family members, seemed to really just override their common sense um, and their ability that they had done in many cases for 20, 30, 40 years, these professors that I was working with, they just forgot to think critically. They forgot to question. And strangely enough, they also were the ones that just didn't seem to bother to go looking for any counter-narratives or any studies. And all of those studies, as um, has been articulated multiple times on my podcast with Professor Gigi Foster, all of those studies were available. They had done multiple pre-pandemic plans, multiple pre-pandemic war games, and there was research available on that, this particular COVID um, virus as early as March, February, March 2020. So that is very early on. So at the end of the day, um, the way I see it is if I had access to it, so did they. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see uh, what this professor of psychology um, from Ghent University has to say and what his take on it is. So probably best if I just shut up and let him talk a little bit. Sorry, I'm just very excited about this. And I'm, and I'm going to sit down because I can't stand. It's too late. Um, oh, that's so much better. Okay. I just think better when I'm standing up. Still think Elvis is alive, but somehow they had no questions over the COVID narrative. And if you did question it, you were outcast and a bad person and a eugenicist. And I was called everything in the world. Genesis? Yes. For me, the hardest part um, was being, uh, first of all, associated with being a Trump supporter for whatever reason that is. Um, and the second thing was people particularly in the early days in 2020, seemed to associate anyone that was um, hesitant, or 2020 and 2021, excuse me, um, anyone that was hesitant about the vaccines and mandates as being a card-carrying member of QAnon. I don't know where that came from, but whoever, whichever mainstream media um, outlet came up with that narrative, they did exceptionally well. Um, anyway. Yes. So you have a theory on how this happens. And in fact, you were studying this for a long time and the conditions were just right for this to happen. So please, can you take all the time you want, explain your theory and explain how former comedians who were supposed to be the chief skeptics in the world turned into the mouthpieces of propaganda. And not only that, but the 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 fascist authoritarians that they turned into and this isn't new this happened in nazi germany this happens a lot of times you know all about it so please take it away i told you like how good is jimmy Dore? he is just amazing i would love to be able to get as as um articulate and as fluid and fluid rather as what he is and also as funny of course as what he is he's he's just brilliant um but i couldn't agree more He's saying that how did comedians, the most cynical people on the planet, the most critical people on the planet, fall for this? As I was just saying, how did all the academics, 
Yes, I, I, I believe what, what happened um, was a large-scale phenomenon of mass formation in our society. Mass formation is a, is a specific kind of group formation, and you actually mentioned all the major characteristics. Uh, so the, one of the most important um, uh, effects mass formation has at the level of individual psychological functioning is that it makes people incapable of taking a critical distance of what they believe in, first, and then second, that it makes people radically willing to sacrifice everything that used to be important for them. And then thirdly, maybe most important, is that it makes people, someone who is in the grip of this phenomenon of mass formation, starts to become radically intolerant for dissonant voices. And uh, that's, so that's, that's just... So basically it, it seems like um, mass formation psychosis involves principally an inability to uh, critically think um, and um, leading to uh, an acceptance of sacrificing everything that is important. Um, obviously, in the case of COVID, that would be um, that would explain lockdowns, for example. Um, and number three, um, as a result of the two conditions above, that they become radically intolerant of anyone that disagrees with them. And I think we. We all certainly witnessed that. I think even people that were in psychosis during COVID um, can probably reflect back now with the hindsight of about 18 months of distance and say, yeah, I kind of went a little bit batshit crazy. And the reason I'm doing these videos and the reason that I talk about COVID is not to make people that thought and and thought and acted in these ways feel bad or um or guilty it's just important i think that you that we all see it for what it actually was so that we we don't let it happen again because like we really can't but I, I, he still hasn't touched on it's only two minutes in and i think i've done more talking than jimmy Dore um and matthias um but he still hasn't touched on what leads to this. So I'm looking forward to hearing that. The strange effects that the phenomenon of mass formation has at the level of individual psychological functioning, and this can go quite far. In the end, for instance, when talking about this intolerance for dissonant voices, uh, this can go quite far. In the end, parents typically start to report their children to the state mm. if they do not follow the state narrative well enough that's 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 this is intolerant for dissonant voices goes goes very far um and um well indeed in the beginning of the corona crisis uh, i started to study the statistics a little bit and i immediately noticed that well in my opinion uh, in a strange way while these statistics were really absurd in many respects uh, almost everyone just went along with the narrative and um I started to think about what happened, and it took me a few months because I really could pinpoint it, in my opinion, and 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 and, um, and understand that what was happening was this phenomenon of mass formation. Uh, it is indeed, as you said, this 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 mass formation typically emerges in a society when very specific conditions are met. And so, one of the most important conditions is that many people have to feel lonely and isolated. They have to feel uh, disconnected from. Um, uh, there are fellow human beings that are disconnected from nature around them. So it's this state of isolation, of loneliness, uh, sometimes also called 
the atomization of the human being, atomization of the human being, which is which is the 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 root cause of uh, of the phenomenon of mass formation. And once people feel socially isolated, once they feel lonely, and this was really the case uh, just before the Corona crisis, just before the Corona crisis. Um, Worldwide, I think about, I mentioned the, the exact figure in my book, um, about 40% of the people worldwide uh, reported to feel lonely, too. reported that they didn't have one meaningful uh, relationship and that they only connected to people through the internet. So like in... in yep. I, I think well, that's all, that's that's very true. I think that that's a condition of of Western societies that um, we're very individualized, and over the years, um, it has certainly been the narrative that the kind of like the the lone wolf, if you like, um, and has been um, that the dominant philosophy of the the successful person, whether that's a male, female, or trans individual, you know, you have to fight, you have to do it alone, um, but 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 I would argue that um, we had the, the the mass formation psychosis didn't kick in the moment that COVID arrived on um, the shores of the Western world in December January December uh, two thousand nineteen January twenty twenty um, it it kicked in much later than that and must much most of the psychosis was definitely focused around um, vaccines and mandates, <clears throat> which obviously were instigated, were put in place um, about 12 to 18 months, depending on where you were in the world, um, after the initial infections began. So actually, I think he's, he's correcting what he's saying, but I think the really lonely and the, particularly the isolated from humans and nature was achieved the year before. And in some places in China, Chile, and in Australia and New Zealand and Canada, um, we were locked down for months at a time. And people were not even allowed to go surfing alone in the ocean. And for many people, things like hiking in the, the bush, surfing they are not just recreational activities they're spiritual activities so by not allowing these things to happen um you are breaking people's connection to their spirit um certainly to nature and the fact that we weren't even allowed to visit family members um children were held back from school universities were closed there was certainly a very strong isolating factor that to me potentially predated the craziness of the mass psychosis, which for me, as I said, didn't kick in initially, but only after we had been isolated for quite a while. It's, the US Surgeon General mentioned that there was a loneliness epidemic, and in the UK, Theresa May appointed a minister of loneliness uh, because she, she, <laughs> because she recognized how, how many felt, felt lonely and isolated. Now and, you, um, you say that this loneliness this has been coming on for hundreds of years, right? And that and that it's the mechanization of our society. And that, you know, I think it even goes back to when Nietzsche said God is dead, right? So we don't have, we only have science in a sense. And so people have, now we have what you can refer to as pre-floating anxiety. And that set the table for, for mass formation, right? Correct? And this has been coming on. 
Yes, that's exactly. So, so uh, uh, you see that there is a very strong correlation between the number of people feeling lonely in a country and uh, the level of mechanization, industrialization, and use of technology in a, in a, in a, in a country. So then that, that, that explains why, that explains exactly why uh, throughout uh, the uh, last few centuries, more and more people started to feel lonely. And at the same pace, uh, the phenomenon of mass formation got stronger and stronger and stronger. Uh, and it became so strong that in the beginning of uh, the 20th century, for the first time, the masses, the mass formations, could seize control of the state apparatus, and the first totalitarian states emerged in the Soviet Union and, and in Nazi Germany. So a, a totalitarian state uh, is a state that is based on the phenomenon of mass formation. It's a state system which emerges uh, after a mass formation, first there is a small group of uh, about 20 to 30 percent of the people who start to become in the grip, fanatically in the grip of a certain narrative, a certain ideology, and that start to form a mass. And then, led by certain leaders, they can seize control of the state apparatus. And in this way, a totalitarian state emerges, which is a kind of state which does not only control public space and political space, as a classical dictatorship does, but which also controls private space because it has, it has a huge secret police, namely this part of the population that is in the grip of the mass formation and that so fanatically believes in the state narrative that they are willing to snitch on everyone, to report everyone of the state who doesn't follow the, the narrative closer. So you see indeed that the root... Now, now I will um, confirm the figures, uh, but I believe that there was a hotline um, set up in Victoria and New South Wales, um, where people were uh, encouraged to dob in um, neighbours and family members and community members um, that were breaking the rules of lockdown. Um, I remember seeing a figure of 20,000 phone calls. I'm just not 100% certain of over what period that those phone calls occurred. Um, but that, that's a very interesting that he brings up the, the snitching because I, I just found the whole idea, um, and this is going to sound ridiculous, but I found it just a little bit anti-Australian to be snitching on your next door neighbour, um, particularly, anyway, let's let him continue. Because of the mass formation is the loneliness, which in its is somehow correlated to the level of mechanization of the world and the use of technology. And that's exactly the reason why more, more and more people started to feel lonely. And then, in a second step, once people feel lonely, they really start to struggle with a lack of meaning-making in life. And um, once they feel lonely and struggle with a lack of meaning-making, and this was also the case just before the corona crisis, for instance, worldwide, over 40% of the people worldwide uh, reported that they considered their job to be a so-called bullshit job, a job which has no meaning at all. So that's huge. Oh. Mm -hmm. that, that, is, that is huge. So, yes. but, but, um, and then, can, can I, I just add something? Yes, go ahead. Yes, because, and then that's very important. Once uh, people uh, feel disconnected from each other, struggle with a lack of meaning maybe, they really start to, experience specific effects. In, in particular, they start to feel confronted with so-called free-floating anxiety, frustration, and aggression. That means a kind of anxiety, frustration, and aggression, 
that is not connected to a mental representation, meaning that they're confronted with anxiety, frustration, and aggression, and at the same time, don't know what they feel anxious, frustrated, and aggressive for. And that's the state. When a population is in that state, something very specific might happen. If under these conditions, um, I just want to um, point out, and this might be obvious to most people um, that are watching or listening, um, but it, it's, it's slightly confusing for me. Um, and I think that this is going to be uh, become clearer as as the interview goes on, because the interview does go for a, a quite a period of time. But right now, um, Matthias is is switching between um, the effects on the individual, um, and then quickly going to what happens when a group of those individuals with those effects join together and form larger groupings, which can then turn into even larger groupings as in like entire states. And by states, when people say states in this context, they're actually talking about countries. And I, I think that he, he was referring to the USSR um, potentially before. Um, so yeah, he's going... Uh, very, very quickly sometimes from talking about the effects on the individual level and then what happens when a group of individuals that have that effect on them kind of band together and then when a singular narrative is put in place, how that can form even larger groupings. I, I, that's a bit confusing for me. But Someone or a narrative is disseminated, a narrative is distributed, that indicates an object of anxiety and at the same time provides a strategy to deal with that object of anxiety. For instance, lockdowns to deal with the violence or uh, the witch hunts to deal, to deal with the witches or uh, the crusades to deal with the Muslims uh, in, in Jerusalem, if under these conditions. So this narrative is distributed, indicating an object of anxiety and a strategy to deal with that object of anxiety, something very specific might happen. All this free-floating anxiety might at once connect to the object of anxiety, and there might be a huge willingness in the population to participate in a strategy to deal with that object of anxiety, even if the strategy is utterly absurd. And the reason is that in this way, people start to feel in control of their anxiety. They can connect it to something, and they have a strategy to deal with it, and at the same time, they can direct all that frustration and aggression on the object of anxiety. So that's the reason why under certain conditions, many people follow this absurd strategy to deal with something that their anxiety is connected to. And then in a second step, something even more important happens, and that's crucial, because so many people, at the same time participate in the strategy to deal with the object of anxiety. They have the feeling that they fight a collective, heroic battle with the object of anxiety. In other words, they feel connected again. They feel not lonely anymore. And, and that's, that's why you have this strange feeling of connectedness and solidarity, which in the end is always fake. It's fake because a mass is a group that is formed, not because people connect to other. No, it's a group that is formed because people connect all separately to a collective ideal, meaning that in the end, they feel a lot of solidarity, not with each other, but with the collective. 
And the longer the mass formation exists, the less solidarity they feel for each other, the more solidarity they feel for the collective, meaning that in the end, they report each and everyone, they snatch on each and everyone whom they think that he doesn't feel the, the narrative well enough, just uh, like that, even when it when it's concerns their own children or their own parents, it doesn't matter. And and this, um, if if you're looking for some concrete examples to do with COVID, there you have to admit that there were some very uh, bizarre um, kind of virtue signals, if you want to call it that, that happened um, during COVID. And of course, principal amongst that was the the rolling up of the sleeve and the pictures on social media of the band aid. Um, when you when you remove that that picture and that idea from COVID, it is, uh, it's truly bizarre. Um, <laughs> it, also, people uh, who were filming themselves, so whether it was Insta celebrities or um, influencers, putting on um, multiple masks, and as they're obviously applying the second mask, they're rubbing their fingers all over the, the first mask, um, which, let's be honest, I think masks um, have been found to be about 14% effective. So that's one four, 14%. And in large population groups, they've found to have absolutely no effect at all. Um, but the other kind of behaving in where in with the idea that the collective is, becomes more important than even the people that we love. A classic example of that was um, in a very, a very sad example was when um, a lady was on the news and I will never forget it. And her younger brother who was healthy and I believe in his forties, um, who was in hindsight at very low risk of even getting a bad case of COVID um, had died from the AstraZeneca vaccine and his sister said, well, he died for the larger cause. These, these things are exactly what Matthias is, is, is referring to right now. Uh, you know, Kurt grew up, and it was my co-host, and he grew up in kind of a cult-like atmosphere around religion. And it's, it seems to resemble religion, right? The COVID narrative. And now here's my question for you. And, and and that's exactly what I was referring to um, at the beginning um, of this video when I was saying that my academic colleagues uh, forgot that that it was that science is an applied science and the scientific method actually involves questioning the science and uh, I think mostly because of um, thought leaders at the time, including Anthony Fauci, who referred to himself as science. I am science, he said. Um, that that created, like, he became a bit of a, a, a cult leader, if you like, um, or a religious leader, if you like, um, who was sprouting his dogma, that they weren't scientific ideas or scientific theories. Um, they were literally commandments. They were presented as if they were the final word. It was... Um, as somebody who was outside of the fear, um, yeah, it was it was very scary. I have to be honest to to see to see that happen. 
the people who like, this is what I don't get. I understand mass formation. I understand how most people go along, but the people who traditionally didn't go along, good job. The people, those are the artists, right? So there are no bigger authoritarian Nazis around COVID than the arts, right? People on Broadway, people in Hollywood. They're no, they're the worst. And those are the people who are supposed to be pushing back. For instance, I have a, I had a close knit group of friends who, I don't know if you know what happened in America, but it's called Russiagate. It's when the Democratic Party and the intelligence community in America concocted its conspiracy theory that somehow Russia and Donald Trump colluded together to overthrow illegally the election of 2020. If that sounds like conspiracy theory to you, um, and initially it did to me, it's very interesting that um, this was recorded, I think um, Jimmy records perhaps on a Monday um, or a Sunday, so perhaps three days ago, uh, in the meantime, which he would not have been aware of, the FBI has done an internal report um, on what happened um, during the Russiagate, and they have come out and they have admitted that they were completely at fault um, and that they have put in place um, policies and procedures and mechanisms so that they don't make the same mistake again. It, it's a huge news story. Um, it's a news story that's trying to be suppressed by the mainstream media, by some of the mainstream media. To their credit, CNN is, to, at this point, and it's only early days, it was only released about 12 hours ago, CNN to this point have basically come out and apologised um, to Donald Trump. Um, so we're going to see how that um, eventuates. But um, I just thought I'd put that in there because um, it's interesting that only about three days ago, um, Jimmy would have potentially got into some trouble with um, the, the moderators perhaps on, on YouTube um, uh, and also uh, the mainstream media, particularly news organisations like CNN and MSNBC, um, would have called him a... A crazy, crazy conspiracy theorist for saying that. It's interesting how quickly things can change. It was completely made up. And I had a group, and there's a lot, but most of the people in America believed it. I had a small group of people who debunked it, saw through it, and we, we were scorned by our friends over debunking it. They said, what are you, a Trumper? Why do you like Donald Trump? We're like, we don't like Donald Trump. We just don't like the intelligence community lying. And we're showing you the lies. And this is all a big distraction. And so even those, the reason I tell you this is because even those people who could see through that big mass delusion of Russiagate and we became closer because of it, they turned on me. Even those people stopped their critical thinking skills when it came to COVID. Like they kept them when it came to Trump and it came to Russiagate and it came to everything. But when it came to COVID, they completely detached. They turned on me in the most vicious way possible uh, publicly. And all I was doing was being consistent, a consistent skeptic of the official establishment narrative, which is what I thought comedians were always supposed to be. And it turns out I was right. I was right at every turn. I got vaccine injured. And at, when I looked into the COVID narrative, they were lying about vaccines. They were lying about the transmission. And um, that's, that's an important point I would like to point out to people who are perhaps new to the Jimmy Dore show. Um, Jimmy did take two, two vaccines and he was um, severely vaccine injured. In, in fact, if you, as you watch this video, um, if you see 
his his eye, um, I think it's his left eye drooping. That is actually one of um, the many um, unfortunate side effects that he did suffer. But he he was kind of, um, I wouldn't say he was all in for the vaccines, but he was certainly supportive. And then, yes, he went away and he did his own research. And thank God he did, because for me, um, going through the COVID period, um, it was people, there was very few, but there were, it was people like Jimmy Dore who really um, helped me through. Traction. They were lying, which was the basis for band-aids. So that just took, that's why they had to lie about them. And so they were lying about that. They were lying about natural immunity. They were lying about herd immunity. They were lying about masks. They were lying about efficacy. They were lying about, they didn't want to release the trial data for 75 years. And still my comedian friends didn't have one question about the COVID narrative. So how does that happen? So in those people that may not be aware, um, Pfizer filed um, to not release um, their, their trial data for 75 years. That was uh, overruled and they have to release it over, I believe, about an 18-month period. Um, interestingly enough, a Texas judge in the last 24 hours has just ruled that the FDA also has to release their data um, over the period of the next year and a half. Um, the FDA didn't want to release their data um, until uh, I think it was 20 years, um, but the judge has ruled that all their data needs to be released by the end of 2025. The artists, the people who are supposed to be the people who push back, or people like Noam Chomsky, who became a complete monster during COVID, those are the people who... So Noam Chomsky broke my heart um, during COVID. Um, he suggested um, effectively the genocide of unvaccinated individuals. Um, saying that they should be banned from society, including uh, banned from uh, getting groceries, um, which is almost unthinkable for someone who has questioned the establishment his entire career, someone who has made millions of dollars from questioning the government um, in an incredibly forceful way, and someone who literally wrote the book on manufacturing consent and to have someone suggest that people, a small minority of the population, um, should be denied food. Horrific, just really, really horrible stuff. What's so surprised, it's like, oh, that's how Hitler got it done, because the people who were supposed to push back didn't. So I'll, you can take it wherever you want. Yeah, I know. It's, it's a very well-known phenomenon that you are describing there. Uh, Joost Mierlo, the author of uh, Rape of the Mind, uh, um, coined the term mental surrender. He said, when a mass formation emerges in society, many people who feel ideologically uh, opposed normally to the, to the narrative that leads to the mass formation, they'll suddenly switch their minds, change their position, and go along with the narrative. That's, so he, he, he calls this phenomenon uh, mental surrender, a very typical phenomenon that happens time and time again when a mass formation emerges. And I believe that while we have seen a lot of massification, which are like a, a kind of precursors of mass formation, throughout the last five or six decades, uh, the corona crisis was the first fully-fledged phenomenon of mass formation since a very long time, and even the very first worldwide phenomenon of mass formation in history. Um, and that's exactly when a mass emerges, when a mass formation that happens, uh, the energetic bonds 
in the masses are so strong that they split all pre-existing group formations into. So the, the line dividing. I, I just want to, um, uh, I was thinking about whether I should do this or not, but I, I just can't help myself. Sorry. I'm just going to push back on something that Matthias said there. Um, it, it was certainly almost a, a global phenomenon, but in actual fact, um, the most rational um, countries um, and the most rational region on the planet during COVID um, was Africa. Um, and if you ever want to see uh, what an alternate response could have looked like or how um, a country or a region can calmly deal with a pandemic and come out of things very well. I mean, exceptionally well, um, without lockdowns, without hardly any vaccines, because you will remember at the, the outset, whatever you think about vaccines, Albert Baller, um, who was who is the CEO of Pfizer said that it was it would be inhumane to charge for vaccines, and then he was obviously quietly and very did a backflip on that when he realised that his company stood to make billion dollars. Um, however, of course, because they can't afford the these vaccines, Africa largely did not receive any. And yet their outcomes were extraordinarily better and continue to be extraordinarily better than what we are seeing in the West. They have they have no issue, for example, right now with excess deaths. So, yeah, if you ever want to read um, about an alternate approach um, to a pandemic, um, perhaps read up on the African experience. Uh, the people who went along with the narrative, with the corona narrative, and the people who didn't, really runs straight through every pre-existing group, like uh, companies, friends, even families, were split into uh, by, the, by the mass formation. And that's typical for a fully-fledged mass formation, for a real mass formation. It is so strong. Uh, the new uh, bonds between um, uh, the new group formation is so strong that it splits all pre-existing groups into even political parties, companies, families, doesn't matter. It's all split in two. So that, that's, that's, that's what happens. Uh, and and it, it typically happens under, under the conditions that I, that I, that I just described. Uh, there must be a sufficient number of people, percentage of the population that feels isolated, suffers with, uh, suffers from lack of meaning making, uh, is confronted with a lot of anxiety, frustration, and aggression, and then this new group formation might emerge. And I think that's exactly what happened. I think it would be interesting to look at um, the, this idea about um, mass formation psychosis and how that applies to identity politics. Because, I mean, what he was um, describing just now, I, I think um, with many um, of the more hardcore activist groups that we're seeing emerge across the Western world um, over the last five, ten years, I think that we could potentially see, like, a, as you said, a splitting there um, with one overriding identity or one overriding um, belief system that forces all else to fall aside. Um, and if we get enough of those groups kind of breaking apart from each other, then you end up with a very 
fractured society. I'm not sure if he has looked, he perhaps he has um, looked at identity politics and how this falls into mass psychosis. But I do th psychosis, I do think this would be interesting. Um, and then there is always this small group of people who doesn't go along uh, with the masses. Uh, this group of people is typically very, very heterogeneous. It comes from all different backgrounds, from all different ideological orientations. Doesn't matter. Um, sorry, I, I know I'm jumping in a lot, but um, this this is this is great. Um, th this is certainly something that um, made me feel extra isolated um, during COVID because um, the I. I was trying to reach out with groups and a large number of people that um, I, I did find were uh, quite homophobic, <laughs> to put it bluntly. Uh, I mean, like, very religious. Um, I, there was a large number of the Jehovah's Witness community who didn't um, follow the narrative, um, certainly when it came to vaccines. Um, and it seemed like uh, the politicians in Australia, and there wasn't many, but there was a few, um, who didn't support um, the mass psychosis that was happening, whether it was around vaccines or whether it was around lockdowns, um, were Clive Palmer, the Clive Palmer politicians, the One Nation politicians, um, the more of the right-wing Liberal Party politicians, and in Australia, Liberal Party is the Conservative Party. So it was even more lonely for for myself um, because of because of that reason. And the small group of people uh, really um, is just baffled by what happens, and it typically tries to wake up the masses. Yes, but it's very yeah. That's it's very typically going. Sorry, Jimmy definitely has spent a large part at, at a huge expense to himself, Jimmy Dore, over the last two to three years to try and wake up um, the masses. Um, I haven't done. I've been quite subtle and quite, uh, I guess, um, soft in my approach. Um, and one of the main criticisms I have from people who I guess are part of, they call it the resistance, there's a whole heap of different names for it. Um, but I think I, I, I did a video about this, about this referring to people who went along with the narrative as normies and sheeple and like this idea of pure blood and dirty blood. It's revolting. And in my opinion, when people are acting out through naivete, um, through fear, particularly when it's fear, not just for themselves, but for their family members. And I know that they treated us in, and myself dreadfully. Um, but, and I am angry about it. I will never forget what happened to me um, here in Australia. And there's a part of me every day that wakes up and wants to leave Australia because of what happened to me during those three years. Um, but I can't, I still can't bring myself to be angry or disrespectful towards those people. And if anything, I find myself at times just feeling incredibly um, concerned and, and scared for those people, particularly the people that are now um, rolling up their sleeves for number six. Um, I, with the amount of research that's coming out um, and what we now know, and also these poor people have lived in 
I would say, extreme fear for three to four years. And whether the vaccines take years off their lives or whether that living with that fear, either way, they're, they're losing a lot of their life. And, and it's because of the actions and the narrative and the dogma that has been forced down their gullet from the people in power. And you guys all know what I feel about people in power that abuse that power. Well, no, it's very difficult. It fails to do so. That is something that was already described in the 19th century by Gustav Lebon, who wrote this wonderful book, The Psychology of the Crown. And uh, he said, like, when a mass emerges, there is always this group of people who uh, is not sensitive for it, is not uh, in the grip of the mass formation. And they typically try to wake up the people in the mass formation, typically try to show them how absurd the narrative is they believe in. And they typically fail to do so, he said. But, and that's extremely important, when this small group of, the, of people continues to speak out, continues to speak in a quiet way, they might not be able to wake up the masses, but they will prevent that the mass formation goes to this ultimate stage where the intolerance for dissonant voices is so strong that the masses typically start to um, discriminate and in the end, eliminate each and everyone who doesn't go along with them as if it is their ethical duty to do so. That's typical for the end stage of mass formation. And the end stage of, ma end stage of mass formation, the masses start to become cruel towards the people who do not go along with them. And they do so as if it is their ethical duty to do so. So if, there is, if this small group of people chooses to continue to speak out, it will prevent the masses to go to the last and ultimate stage of the mass formation. And that's was the major mistake that the resistance did in Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. Around 1930, the resistance stopped to speak out in the Soviet Union. Around 1935, they stopped to speak out in Nazi Germany. And within a period of six to 12 months, the cruelties started in this country. Just because at that moment, the group, the mass formation, which is a kind of a mass hypnosis, becomes complete. Because mass formation, just like mass hypnosis, which is more or less identical, is a phenomenon that is provoked by the voice of a leader. And when the, when the voice of the leader is the only voice that can be heard, it's then that the mass formation goes to the last and ultimate, ultimate stage. So continuing to, speak, continuing to speak out is just crucial. And also something else as well. Um, I, I really try to avoid making things overly political. Um, but as he's speaking about um, it comes down to one voice, it comes down to one leader, it comes down to their word, um, I can't help but be reminded of people like Dan Andrews um, who continue to spew hatred towards anyone um, who disagrees with him. Um, that's right. A group who doesn't go along with a major mass formation might fall prey to a minor mass formation. And that's also something we should absolutely avoid, and which sometimes happens, I think. So you talk about it as a hypnosis, that it's a, like, so when I see someone 
in May of 2023 in a comedy club wearing a mask and they're a 35 year old healthy person. Uh, that's, they're literally hip. There's no difference between someone being hypnotized and what they're going through, right? The, the main uh, difference that I would um, put forward is that that person uh, that is hypnotized on stage um, or you know hypnotized in private um, doesn't force their hypnosis onto other people and or think that their hypnotized state is more virtuous and more correct than other people. Well, the similarities are clear. Uh, in a hypnosis, uh, someone's attention, so the person who is hypnotized, his attention is focused on a very small part of reality. That's what the hypnotist does. So he just draws away the attention, disconnects the attention of someone from the environment with a certain procedure, and then focuses all the attention on one small aspect of reality. And once the attention is focused on one small aspect of reality, it is as if the rest of reality doesn't exist anymore. This is an extremely strong phenomenon, which, for instance, can be used uh, to perform uh, surgical operations. Very typically, I wrote a, a stack about that to show how throughout the last two centuries, uh, this um, uh, hypnosis uh, was used uh, to, uh, uh, during surgical operations, just because even when, when, when someone's attention is focused on one small aspect of reality, it is the rest of reality doesn't exist anymore, and the person even doesn't feel physical pain anymore. So that shows how extreme. I really quick. I wanted to. I've heard you talk about how, and I experienced this during COVID. So I was the voice. Um, that technical error was was not mine. Um, I didn't cut anything out there. Um, that was that was a bit of bad editing uh, from the Jimmy Tor show. No. And people, and it's nice. Now, people, some people are starting to recognize it. Last night I went to dinner. Uh, the guy at a restaurant bought us dinner because he said, keep speaking up. And, it, and I was like, oh, that's, so that's good. That made me feel good. But I didn't do it. I just did it because once I knew the truth, I couldn't, what else am I going to do? Go out there and lie, right? Like, that just blew my mind. But it, so I tried to, my whole point of my show became, to tell people the truth about COVID, mostly that mandates were wrong because they weren't doing what people thought they did. They thought if everybody got vaccinated, it would stop the pandemic. And if everybody got vaccinated, there wouldn't be any COVID outbreaks in our country. And that was never the case. And that's what I kept showing that the countries around the world that had the highest vaccine update were having some of the highest outbreaks. And so this is before we knew that they never tested for transmission of the that that's that's one hundred percent true. As it stands um, right now, the um, COVID experience in um, Australia and New Zealand, um, I know that, and I'm very much aware that we are in the the cooler seasons. Hence, I'm like this, um, but we are having the worst outcomes um, globally right now, and yet we are ninety two percent. Don't quote me on that exact figure, but it is above 90% of all eligible adults aged above 18 years of age have had at least two shots. Iris, that's before. I figured it out just on the data. And so me showing people data didn't make a difference 
right? So talk about that. Talk about how if you try to change people's minds during one of these things and you use data, which is what I was doing, I was trying to use actually science and data, that that will have no effect on them. Can you speak sure. to that? The word of God convicts your heart, not your head. <laughs> okay. So could you speak to that? Yes, yes. But, uh, rational arguments usually doesn't don't make a difference. That's very typical. Um, um, uh, so that that also that was also described by uh, by Gustave Le Bon uh, in the in the in the nineteenth century already. That the rational arguments uh, absolutely um, are not sufficient to wake someone up within a mass formation. But of, but of course we have to distinguish between three um, three groups. I think so. Like the group who is really in the grip of the mass formation usually is rather small. It's only about twenty to thirty percent of the population. And but then. There is a 60, 65% of the people who just go along with the masses and they've always remained silent. They feel that there is something wrong with the narrative, uh, but they, they just prefer uh, to remain silent uh, because in one way or another, they maybe don't find the courage to speak out or they just uh, take the easy way and do as if they agree with the masses. Um, so, uh, and then there is a small group of people usually rather small, one to five percent, maybe sometimes 10 percent, uh, it depends on the circumstances, who sees that there is something wrong, who feels that there is something wrong with the narrative, and who tries to speak out. And, and indeed, this, this small group might have an impact through rational argumentation on the middle group, that's possible, but usually not on the, on the group who is really in the grip of the mass formation. So I think in any case, it's always important uh, that we continue to speak out, but we should realize that uh, we might fail or we might, that we might not succeed to wake up the people. And at the same time, and that's just crucial, we should understand that, that it is not because we do not succeed in waking up the masses that our voice does not have an effect. Our voice does have an effect. It prevents that people go deeper and deeper in the mass formation. Mm -hmm. So that's just, once you understand that, you understand that we always have to continue to speak out without expecting that we will convince someone. Uh, uh, uh. The, the hardest part with, with COVID was that um, it captured all of the elites. And Jimmy spoke about that at the beginning. So we didn't have any of the big power brokers um, from Hollywood or from the political scene um, or from like, the international sporting scene, uh, with one notable exception, um, granted, um, Novak Djokovic, um, who prior to COVID, I didn't have a lot of time for. I was a huge Federer and Nadal fan. But since um, the COVID situation, I cannot help say what you want about his sportsmanship on the tennis court and his his attitude more generally. I, I get it. I get the arrogance. However, you to be able to stand up in the face of what that man faced and to stand for your morals and values when there was literally no one else really in the position of power that were either speaking out or not coming down hard on him that is absolutely extraordinary. I think that Matthias needs to to, folk, to perhaps address the the power dynamic as well as the the general formo, um, mass formation psychosis. I think power and the elites 
it really doesn't take 100% of them to conform and enforce the narrative. And then the other 60%, perhaps they don't push back, perhaps they just follow sometimes the narrative. But I wonder where their power and their choice comes into that. Um, you know, you, you're talking about people probably mostly from the middle class and the working class. And these people are, in many, many cases, living week to week, month to month. It, it's one thing to say that like 60% just follow the narrative, but I think it's more about they have to follow what the powerful tell them to do. They're not just sheeple. A lot of people didn't want the mandates. They didn't want the vaccine, but they also didn't want to lose their jobs. They also didn't want to starve on the streets. They also have children and grandchildren to support. I think it's just, it's complex. And if we continue to do so, we will have an effect. And at the same time, as I just said, uh, we also should be aware always that we do not fall prey to a different mass formation ourselves. Because also in the group who doesn't go along with a major mass formation, um, also this group struggles with a lot of anxiety, frustration, and, 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 and aggression in this situation because they just feel threatened in one way or another. And this group might also fall prey to um, uh, certain narratives which attribute all anxiety and all danger to one specific small object while the situation... Um, Bill Gates, anyone? <laughs> I, I couldn't help myself, sorry. Um, there, there does seem to be an unnatural obsession um, with uh, in, in the resistance um, towards uh, the WEF um, and, of course, to the Bill and Melinda Gates uh, Foundation and, of course, Bill Gates himself. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know really what to say there. I, I know... Um, what's going on? I'm very much aware um, of the, the the Great Reset. I'm aware of Bill Gates's influence in the WHO, um, as well as many other international organisations. Um, but I don't believe that these two individuals have the monopoly of power. That they have the monopoly on violence. Um, and that they, these groups and this individual is solely responsible. And I think that it is um, naive. Um, and I also think that it is allowing tens of thousands of other people who are responsible to get away with a lot. And I just don't like the thought of that. It's easy to scapegoat a couple of people, particularly when they stand out as much as they do. Um, and, you know, you could point towards Anthony Fauci as well. I think that he's one of the most evil men that has ever existed on this planet. But there is a huge bureaucracy behind him and there's a lot of power above him. I guess what I'm saying is try to think a little bit wider, try to think outside the easy, the easy target, because there's a lot more going on. Much more complex than that. I, I, I experienced it, experienced that with my group that were, uh, you know, proud that we were Russiagate uh, debunkers. And they immediately, exactly what you said, it's like that all that anxiety that they had 
that around that from being on the outside of the uh, mainstream. Uh, they just focused the, on that on COVID narrative. And it was fear, fear, fear. I've never seen anything like it. And if you want to disconnect someone's rational thinking or critical thinking skills, put it that way, uh, is just, you just find their fear porn. And they found it. And, you know, people who I know personal comedians who are diabetics, who complained about the corruption of our government by the big pharma and why their diabetic by diabetes medicine costs so much more here than in other countries and how they're all corrupted. And then as soon as COVID came and vaccines, they're like, no, not, not one question. Not only did they not have a question, but they wouldn't allow me to have a question. And if I had a question, and and you, can you talk about the the uh, you mentioned it earlier, but talk about the, the they 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 were so vicious in the character assassination of me and people like me, but they. But you- um, I just wanted to um, just point out something that I wasn't aware of um, that I learned from a podcast in. A couple of weeks ago, um, and the podcast was interviewing J.K. Rowling about the trans controversy that um, surrounds her. Um, and they um, they liked they were very. It was a very good podcast. I highly recommend it. I will get the name of it and certainly post it in the description below because it's well worth a listen. Um, they did get on some trans activists. Very well spoken. Very well educated. Um, and I was just super surprised um, to hear uh, one of the world's leading trans activists say, um, and this is paraphrasing, so please, um, that in essence, asking a question is violence. So the reporter had to, um, or the person that was conducting the podcast was apologizing a lot for the questions that she was asking and the the trans activists did say that they were feeling triggered and they had to deal with um, those questions were not private questions they were simply just questions about their experience of being a trans person so it would seem that that idea or the idea behind simply asking a question asking for clarification um, or even just the act or the of being naive to a position is considered violence. So in that regard, if that is what some smaller activist groups are saying and what they, and I truly believe that this person believed that questions were violence, um, that it's not overly surprising that those ideas would infiltrate the, the COVID narrative. But you say they saw it as their moral duty to do so. Can you talk about that psychology? No, of course. Uh, well, well, this mass formation actually. So you have, you, we always have to understand that uh, the the origin of mass formation is the terrible psychological state a population is in before the mass formation starts. This means that they feel lonely, uh, struggle with lack of meaning making, suffer from all this anxiety, frustration, and aggression. Then the mass formation emerges. And it seems as if all these things disappear. They feel connected again. They have a new meaning in life, like to fight the virus. All their anxiety is connected to an object. They can control it and they can direct all their frustration and aggression at one point. And if they meet someone who doesn't agree and who tries to show them that the narrative that led to the mass formation just is absurd, they feel threatened because they feel that if they allow that person to speak to them, they will wake up and they will be confronted 
with all this pre-existing uh, misery again. So that's why they feel, and and also, so they, that's why they start to to to, to they try to to make uh, the dissonant voice uh, uh, shut up. That's what they just uh, why they just can't stand the dissonant voice. And at the same time, they consider it their holy duty. Their 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 because they feel that this person who doesn't go like, uh, uh, along with the masses, who doesn't go along with the narrative, must be an egoist. He lacks solidarity. He lacks this new citizenship, yes. which is so which is so typical for the masses. <laughs> um, and we saw this um, this idea around um, selfishness uh, play out. Sorry, I, I just like to give examples um, so that it kind of um, concretes the idea or cements the idea in your head. So um, this idea behind um, people that questioned the mainstream narrative as, as being selfish, um, that certainly um, played out with the idea of you don't take the vaccine to protect yourself, you take it to protect granny. Um, so you see the, those sort of narratives. Um, and I would like to, again, point out um, that at the end of last year, a Pfizer executive, when being questioned by the European Council, was um, straight out asked if Pfizer tested um, to see if their vaccines stopped transmission. And she said, no, we didn't do that. There was no time. They feel connected again in the masses, and thus they feel a lot of solidarity, and they feel a new citizenship. And if there is someone who doesn't go along with them, this must be uh, someone um, uh, who is not really a human being, uh, and and then we should be destroyed in the end. Who deserves to be destroyed? That's that's how people who knew me for thirty years. That's exactly almost the language they use. That I should be destroyed. That I was doing this out of ego, and I. I just want to make this important point that, again, um, those ideas would not have found feet, um, would not have been so solidified in the public discourse if it wasn't for politicians like Dan Andrews, who was saying these things and supporting these ideas and pushing these ideas and literally saying that he wants to make life uncomfortable for these selfish people that didn't take the vaccine care about anybody and nothing to do again but you know as we talk about it that i could show them facts and it didn't matter people who knew me 30 years did this kind of thing and of course i mean i don't want to make it about myself but i've been dying to talk to you about this because of it kurt you want to ask a question people were rabid then after 9 11 we had that whole solidarity for that bad idea that we did i think it was less persecution so 9-11 in in my view um brought people together it, it actually uh increased and and there are studies that have shown this that it actually increased nationalism anti, and there was a lot right but it was less than this one i think there was more here and i've COVID. never heard someone say don't do your own research i've never life. heard some people would say in america comedians on stage would shame people for doing your own research. And they would say stuff like, trust the science. Well, you don't trust the science before first you examine it skeptically. That's what you're supposed to do. What they wanted you to do was have blind faith in science, which is what you have in religion. That's not what you have in science. Science works by questioning it. It's science loves to be questioned. It's a lie that can't stand scrutiny. 
And so that's how they mix those two things together. Trust science, have faith in science. That's not how science works. That's called. It's also a very important point um, that Jimmy is making because um, this is actually how we progress as as a, as a society. It is actually um, how science has always progressed: physics, chemistry, medicine, biology, or our understanding of everything. Um, has only moved forward and progressed because there was someone that stood up or put their hand up and said, this doesn't make sense. Um, I'm going to challenge this. I mean, could you imagine if Charles Darwin hadn't been brave enough to put up his hand? And you might say that it's extreme to compare this, compare those two things, but it's really not. They, They were literally there were scientists, there were epidemiologists, there were politicians that were saying that the science is final, that this is it. We, you, you cannot question the science because the science is in and this is it. And I mean, the fact that these vaccines were unprecedented and never, uh, vaccines had never used mRNA um, technology before, and mRNA technology had uh, perhaps a decade of testing, but they did not have a decade of testing behind this. But the the point I'm making is that the only way we can move forward um, as a society and the only way we can progress is if we question everything. Blind faith. And so I just never, honestly, God, I cannot convey the most, how my, my nothing blew my mind more that to see almost the entire comedy community or the parts that I saw of it anyway, in unison, shaming people for reading, for trying to get in. I'm I'm feeling a little bit emotional for, for Jimmy um, because um, he has gone through um, a lot. Um, and um, I feel sometimes when he's talking like this and he does get carried away and he does get passionate, um, that he's just, he's been incredible. He's been hurt. Um, a lot and and very deeply and I feel like a lot of people I've been hurt deeply by what people have said and by what my government did to me and um, what the narrative was what mainstream media was saying what politicians were saying about me Um, and it is it's it's very hurtful about an experimental medical treatment they're being forced to take. And if you want to know what's in that vaccine, or if you want to see the data or want to have any skepticism or questions, you're a bad, how dare you? You're, you are the Nazi. I'm uh, obviously being ignorant to the fact that they're the Nazi, like, like Chomsky was, uh, completely ignorant to the fact that what he was doing, he should have been tipped off to because they did it in World War II. They forced medical treatments on people without informed consent, which is why that's a war crime. And that Chomsky famously likes to shame every president since World War II. He says they're all war criminals. And he's right about that. But guess who also pushed for a war crime? No, Chomsky, because forcing a medical treatment on someone without informed consent goes against the Nuremberg trial. So he became the thing he thought he's been criticizing his whole life. They just had to find the fear button in Chomsky's brain. They pressed it and he became an authoritarian monster. So I don't know where the, oh, let's, let's just change the subject very quickly. And here's another thing, like you're not allowed to question the science, right, around COVID. 
but I found out through you that 85% of academic research pretty unreliable, correct? Yes, well, uh, in, in certain domains, yes. Um, in 2005, the, the so-called replication crisis started in, uh, in, uh, in the academic world, and it, it showed, or at least certain authors, uh, among whom, for instance, the, the famous um, uh, John Ioannidis uh, of Stanford, uh, he uh, uh, described how in, in certain uh, academic domains, such as the medical sciences, uh, up to 85% of the peak of the of the public of, of the publications of the of the findings cannot be reproduced so which means that from a from a scientific point of view uh, they are not objective and they are more or less yeah, useless in most cases so it's it's um that professor i'm aware of that professor he is absolutely extraordinary and another very brave individual um he is a medical ethicist um so he looks at medical ethics um, and I believe that he is one of the most cited um, writers, academic writers on the planet today. Percentages, 85%. Um, John Ioannidis wrote some wonderful papers about it. Uh, uh, one of the papers was titled, uh, Why Most Published Research finding, Findings Are False. And I indeed believe that this is one of the major problems we have in our society. We all trust, we have a blind belief in, uh, in, in, uh, in science and in the academic world, or in something that calls itself science, but that in in in, um, in most cases actually. Uh, uh... This is, um, I believe, that one of the things that John says is that this is a relatively new phenomenon. Um, it has a lot to do with um, the volume that is being uh, created right now, um, because there is. A lot of pressure on academics to produce more and more research um, at, with um, like in quicker and quicker time frames. Plus, they are still expected to teach on top of that and to have almost um, kind of social media profile existence as well on top of that, which is someone that's trying to create content and moving that space. That within itself is a full-time job. Um, but not to mention most of the research that is coming out of universities now is either partly funded or fully funded by private organisations um, because governments no longer like to pay um, for the research that happens in university. They've kind of deferred that to the private sector. So that within itself will immediately mean that there is bias um, within that research that just simply cannot be um, removed. Um, there is also just inherent bias. Every researcher knows this in just having the researcher themselves select what they are going to choose to research and what aspect of that phenomenon that they choose to research. Because by choosing one thing, you're literally ignoring everything else. So that within itself is also a bias. Um, then you have institutes within universities who are funded by philanthropy. Um, we've just seen um, um, uh, Packer, uh, his first name's escaping me because it's quite late, James Packer, um, donates $7 million to the University of New South Wales. Um, and that is not a donation, that is a pledge, and pledges often come with strings attached. I'm not saying that is 
occurring in this particular case. I'm just saying that often money, particularly large amounts of money that are given, come with strings attached. Researchers are also, um, just like every other human beings, they are driven by basic um, motivations, including money, ego and prestige. And so researchers know that they just cannot touch anything that is controversial, anything that is going to make them, their institute, their department or their university look bad. So, you know, there's a lot going on. Not to mention, as I said, that science studies are, are rarely able to be replicated. Just it's not accurate. So indeed, that's, that's a huge problem. I think we should reconsider uh, our blind belief in, uh, in, uh, in what we believe uh, uh, science is today. For instance, speaking to this very point, can you tell me how long is the coastline of England? Yes, I mentioned that somewhere in, 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 the, in the third chapter of my book. Um, and it, you, nobody can measure the coastline of, of Great Britain. That's, that's, something, that's something very typical. We, we all believe that we can measure almost everything, but it's just not true. Most, most phenomena cannot be measured. And that's one of the, like, like the, the, uh, the coastline of Great Britain cannot be measured because uh, it's, it's, it's intrinsically two-dimensional. Uh, it, 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 it shows a lot of um, um, curves and, 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 and every time you try to reduce it to a straight line, it doesn't work. So um, the, the smaller your measurement unit, the longer the coastline of Great Britain will be. That's typical, um, uh, and um, that's that's one of the of the major problems I think we deal with. We we we, we think that everything can be studied in an objective way, but that's uh, actually not true. I can measure it. It's one Great Britain long. <laughs> <It's done>. <laughs> <laughs> I, just fix the measurement. You were easy. There, there it is. So I think can I, I can I add one thing to that? Yeah, I think. In the end, and that's that's the analysis that I that I um, that I present in my book. I think that in the end, the problem of mass formation and of totalitarianism um, is rooted in our rationalist view on man and the world. That's what I explain in my book. That's explained in my book. So this um, just before he moves, we move on to that point. I just wanted to say that um, on um, being able to measure. I was only made aware um, the other day um, through social media, of course, um, that uh, the world, what we know as the world map is actually incorrect. Um, the world map is not the world map of land. It's actually the world map of oceans, um, which makes a huge difference. And I'm, what I'll do is I'll link in the description um, because what they do is they, they show just how small, uh, in fact, how tiny some land masses are that look huge um, on the map and they, they talk about why that is and how that came about. But actually um, the world map, as we know, it dates back to about the 1600s. It's extraordinary. I really want to talk about but this. This needs at least two hours, but if, let's talk about it. Um, so this is where I think people like. Uh, I'm just going to go back there because I think I spoke over an important point. Can I, can I add one thing to that? Yeah, I think. In the end, and that's that's the analysis that I that I um, that I present in my book. I think that in the end, the problem of mass formation and of totalitarianism um, is rooted in our rationalist view on man and the world. 
That's what I explained in my book. That's explained in my book. So this part I really want to talk about. This this needs at least two hours, but if, let's talk about it. Um, so this is where I think people like uh, well, you, you you talk about you know the, the you know since the enlightenment and people we've become more mechanized and people have that creates free floating anxiety and. So it's because, you know, the way our culture is now, it's everything's cause and effect, right? If I, if I can't measure it, then, then it doesn't, doesn't exist, right? And, you know, Carl Jung spent a lot of time uh, uh, talking about a collective unconscious and that um, you can't, you know, like for instance, where artists and poets get their um, inspiration from, it can't come, a lot of it doesn't come right from direct experience from their life. It comes from somewhere else and he posited that it comes from a collective unconscious, which we all share, which we all do share. And so um, people who just think rationally, rational thinking doesn't equal reality necessarily. And can you explain what I mean by that? I will try to. <laughs> yes, on the one hand, science is an accumulation of rational knowledge. But on the other hand, science is also a certain practice which showed us that the essence of life and the essence of reality can never be understood in a rational way. And that's what many people forget, like Niels Bohr, to give only one example. After uh, Niels Bohr uh, was a Nobel Prize winning uh, physicist who studied the behavior of elementary particles, atoms, for instance, um, throughout his entire life. And in the end, he said, when it comes to atoms, language can only be used as poetry because he acknowledged, and he was dead serious when he said that, he acknowledged that in the end, uh, what we call matter, elementary particles, just doesn't behave in a rational way. And it took, it took me personally until I was 35 years old before I really understood that. I, I, was, I, I was taking a deep dive into the, the mathematical basis of complex dynamical systems theory. And I just suddenly understood that all complex dynamical systems behave as an irrational number. For instance, they have no periodicity. And that makes them fundamentally unpredictable. And I suddenly started to understand what all these great scientists meant when they concluded that in the end, life and everything around us cannot be understood in a rational way, that the essence of life can never be reduced to the categories of our rational, logical understanding. Meaning that if we try to reduce life to the categories of our rational and logical understanding, we will always destroy life. And that's so in a certain part of life or a certain part of reality can be understood in a rational way. But the essence always escapes rational understanding. So and that's also why I think once you start to really be humble enough to admit that your rational brain, your rational understanding will never be capable of grasping the essence of life. It's at that moment. I really believe that when we think in a logical way, we really connect the one idea to the other. And we build a wall around this, almost literally a wall which isolates us from the music of life around us, from the eternal music of life around us. And then we can stop our rational understanding. Then we can stop 
being convinced that everything around us can be reduced to our own logical, understand logical understanding, it's at that moment that the building blocks of this wall slide a little bit away from each other and that the eternal music of life can go through the wall and touch the strings of our being, almost literally of our body. And that's, I, I think that, this, that it is at that moment that you, in one way or another, participate in something eternal outside of you, something that you can never understand, but that will always be there. And it is at that moment, I think, that you also start to be less scared of everything related to death and dying in the end of life, for instance. And that's just because you feel that you're connected to something uh, that transcends rational understanding and that uh, has an eternal nature. And I think that that also shows that what the major uh, problem is in our enlightenment society, because we try to control, to understand, control, and manipulate everything in a rational way, we start to become very scared of death and dying. And we just cannot tolerate the idea anymore. Of mystery. That, uh, this, I mean, oh gosh, I'm like... That's one of the most beautiful things that um, that I've listened to in a very, very long time. Um, I thought that was absolutely brilliant. And I, I think that, that that really encapsulated a lot of what happened during COVID. Perhaps um, Matthias has just captured what I hoped he would at the, the very beginning when I said that he was, I was hoping he would bring up uh, fear and how that can, contributed and, and what he is saying. And, and I feel this myself is that the fear came from a complete lack of control. People's feeling that they could not control um, their own um, their own death. They could not control the outcome of this situation, and the illusion that we live in, in particularly in the West, um, and particularly in the in atheist societies like Australia, is that we have complete control of every aspect of our lives. We micromanage every single thing that we do. And I'm guessing that, that what happened during COVID is that idea was fractured a little bit. And you can kind of see some concrete examples of that when you would see people on the news that would be talking about the passing of their grandfather, great-grandfather, great-grandfather. And I remember seeing a, a story from Melbourne where a family were saying that they were going to sue a nursing home because their 93-year-old grandfather had passed away from COVID and they hadn't protected him. This, this, this really messed with my head because it took um, an, a man who has existed on this planet for 93 years, who had gone through wars, great wars, world wars, um, who had great grandchildren, who had obviously achieved so much and had in his final moments reduced him to a victim and a potential paycheck for his family. The, and, but, you know, there, the whole thing was because it was framed that there is this idea that, particularly amongst young people, that we, we're all going to live forever. Now, this, and that they can, and also that they can control um, every aspect of life. And, and that's just not the case. And it's interesting because I knew and know that a lot of the people in the resistance, including myself, I'm not religious, but I am very spiritual. And I, I do believe that there is something outside of this existence, but I also know that I 
when I studied medicine, um, graduate medicine, um, one of my um, colleagues uh, was a hardcore atheist where he worshipped, although he did worship Richard Dawking a little bit too much, um, but he believed that death was final. Um, his funeral plan was to be put into a cardboard box and thrown on a bushfire and or a fire, just a large fire, basically. Um, and that was it. Lights out, that's all there is. Um, so it's understandable that if people have that idea around death, that um, a virus like this um, that could potentially kill them is going to scare the shit out of them. And they're going to look for people who exhibit signs of control, people who take on the role of mummy and daddy and carer and are basically saying, if you want to be okay, all you have to do is this. We're going to look after you. You're going to be okay. You're going to get many things. Like Think about the narrative they used about the vaccines. This is our way back to normal. Forgetting, of course, that they're the ones that took normal away in the first place. And normal was our freedom, our human rights. But putting that aside, even the idea of this, it can help to explain why people were so like in psychosis about the potential effects and the potential outcomes of being vaccinated and why they were so uh, militant against us. Yeah, the mystery in life. Yes, life is a mystery, and then and then people come along like uh, who I'm a fan of, Sam Harris, and he. There's no mystery. It's all A plus B equals C, and you know you you talked about that quantum physicist, and and you know there's a thing called the measurement. He talks about how elements and particles don't ra act rationally. Well, there's this experiment they do. It's uh, I think it's called the measurement problem. So they flat fire they fire electrons through a slit in the paper, and they're supposed to go right where you think they would go on a, on the back wall. Slit experiment with waves and, yes. and particles. So and the particle yeah. right. And, and so, so if you if you when you look at them, they right. go right where you think they're supposed to go. But if you don't put your consciousness on them, they go everywhere. They act irrationally. Right. And so that's what I think. That's the underlie that underlies everything in the universe is irrational. Okay. The, this so thing happened with COVID. If they were being rational, like they said, there wouldn't be a statement like. Trust the science. That's right. That's irrational. They turned it into something mystical. That's right. They did. They turned. Don't read it. Like I'm in goddamn church in medieval times. That's the irony. I'm gonna go trust the science. Like go ahead and act all rational. Don't believe in anything. I don't care. Do that, and just don't call it science. That's right. That's so. So they they did they the under the guise of being rational, they became mystics and they turned scientists. I got out of a thing because it bothered me having to be you know in a thing like that where I have my. Just do you yeah, want to brother from the one true faith with your questions? Yeah. So I get real triggered by it in there. And what I just discovered was I can never escape it. Everywhere I go, except it's not like a church is going to be your employment. And all we're all doing, and then now you see all these companies with their uh, culture, mm -hmm. minister or manager, not minister, but mm -hmm. everybody line up. We're all going to wave our hands in the air. We're not raising your bank, but we're all going to form a family. These dumb activities, and they're all doing it now. Mm -hmm. Probably spending money to just get employees to get them in that culty 
you know, trust the company. Because trust that's what trust the science means. It means the science was handed to you that's right. by these two companies. Trust, trust it. Don't look at Trust the company. Yes, it does. Well, too stupid to research. Guess what? They're not going to research. It's, it's, so to say it's the people can read. <laughs> But that is so um just but um for those people who haven't seen the Jimmy Dore show before, um Kurt Metzer, who's on the screen now, is um uh, a comedian, he's a very good comedian, um, but he he grew up in a Jehovah's Witness family. Um and so that that's what what he's talking about. The big idea that you touch on about that the basis of life isn't doesn't act rational, and that you know, you you do become less afraid i know i have become less afraid of death you know knowing that i'm connected to something eternal um and that you know time only exists in this level of consciousness and that we are collect connected to a collective consciousness that knows no time and um people who miss that i think are missing out on life what don't you think so uh yes i i think to a certain extent i i agree um, um, you know, I just want to say something about the experiment re you referred to before I, I, I go into the, the last question. It's a double slit experiment. That's it. Refer yes, and, that, and it shows that when you observe an elementary particle, it behaves like a particle, but when you do not observe it, it behaves like a wave, which is something completely different. So, and uh, indeed, uh, uh, that's one of the of the of the most important experiments in, in, in quantum physics. But then exactly, I also think that, you know, we can know life in two different ways, I think. We can know it in a rational way, and we can know it by resonating with it, which is something completely different. And uh, I think, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I, I, I really think uh, we should um, uh, walk the path of rationality as far as possible. I really think we should push our rational understanding of the world to the utter limit, but at that moment we should be honest enough and humble enough to, to, to admit that sooner or later we arrive at the border of our rational understanding and that we have to switch to a different way of knowing the world in. And that we can only do that by resonating with it. And actually, I think that it is, it is this capacity to resonate with, with a certain phenomenon that is also the basis in the origin of science. Uh, René Tom, uh, one of the most famous mathematicians of the 20th century, uh, had, this had this wonderful quote. I will just try to repeat it, but it will not be literally. But he said, uh, I think that what distinguishes a, a, a scientist uh, from uh, most people is not that he has this extra, extraordinary, extraordinary capacity uh, to think in a rational way, but that he has this extraordinary capacity to get into the skins of into the skin of things, to resonate with things, and to understand them from within. So that's that's a different way of understanding the world. And I think that the essence of life, we can we can resonate with the essence of life, but we can never know it in a rational way. And it is this resonance which connects us to the essence of life. And we can start resonating uh, with, with things outside of us. If we are capable of leaving our ego behind, and if you are capable to stop to think in a rational way, so that's something very strange. <laughs> yes. I think that that's the that's the major leap forward that our society has to take. It has to understand that rational thinking thinking can never be the cornerstone of society, 
and can never grasp the essence of life and that we have to uh, move on to a, a different way of connecting uh, to each other and to the world around us. That's uh, some very profound stuff. Is, that's uh, great stuff. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Uh, really exciting. I'm glad I could. Uh, you're willing to come on the show and our audience got to hear you. It's really fantastic. Uh, everybody check out his book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism. Uh, thanks to my guest, uh, Matthias Desmond. I really appreciate you coming on. I hope we can talk again soon. Uh, me too, Jimmy. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you very much. Check out my new stand-up special, COVID Lies Are Funny, at JimmyDoor.com. Only $10, become a premium member. We're going to be on tour in Northampton, Massachusetts, Syracuse, Cohoes, New York, Hartford, Los Angeles, Bakersfield, California, Baltimore, Maryland, and San Francisco, California. Plus, if we say Chicago, there's lots of stuff. Go to JimmyDoor.com for a link for tickets. See you there. Wow. Well, that was uh, awesome for me. I think that that's uh, one of the best hours that I've spent in, in a very long time. Um, I left up the Jimmy Dawes um, outro um, so that you could see that his tour dates. Um, honestly, if you haven't seen his work before, um, it is it is awesome. I probably uh, will tune into Jimmy Door at least uh, three or four times a week. Um, he does little short segments. Um, well, actually, he does a, a very large podcast, and he does he breaks it up into smaller segments, which is what I'm I'm trying to do myself. He's been an amazing um, support network. Him, Kurt, um, and the whole team there, including Aramate, um, throughout this entire period for me. Um, but just even moving forward, um, his opinions, um, his views on politics, um, and his inclusiveness is amazing. So um, please support him. And I hope that you enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, I guarantee you the next video will not be anywhere near as long as this one. Uh, until then, that's all I have to say. And I'll see you soon. Bye now.